Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I know where we left off, and I know where we're beginning. In Mark, chapter 2, Jesus is on a timetable. Jesus is on a schedule. What we read is that when the fullness of time came, then Jesus came to the planet because God works everything according to his own schedule, his own calendar, his own sovereign plan. Now, Jesus was born at exactly the right time so that when he turned 30 and began his earthly ministry, it would be three and a half years later 
until he was on that cross. He has a date with the cross. It has to happen on a year when Passover and first fruits and the Pentecost later all fall in such an order that he is able to satisfy all of the spring feasts in his three days and three nights in the tomb. And so God has scheduled this. God has planned this in such a way that Jesus was born at exactly the right time, started his earthly ministry at exactly the right time, fulfilled all of the things he was to fulfill as far as Old Testament prophecies concerning himself, and then he was on the cross at exactly the right time so that he could complete and fulfill everything God had prepared for him. So, knowing that he has a date with a cross coming up, he has to do some things in order to make sure there are people who are angry enough with him to put him on that cross at that particular time. Now, we also read in the Gospels that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, had gathered together and said, well, one thing we don't want to do is crucify him on the Passover. If we crucify him on Passover, that's just going to make things worse because then people are going to think of him as a religious martyr. So whatever we do, we just don't want to crucify him on Passover. But... God, as soon as he laid out in the law the rules of the Passover, as soon as Israel came out of Egypt and God laid out the Passover rules about how they were to put blood on the door and eat a lamb and remember their deliverance from Egypt, soon as God said all that, he established a time, a date. It had to be that Jesus would die on Passover that he was the Paschal Lamb, that he was the sacrifice of God, that he was the final sin atonement, and that he was the separation from the curse of God. All of that had to happen. So despite human beings saying, whatever we do, let's not crucify him on the Passover, nevertheless, what day did he die? Passover. Passover, because as soon as he started his earthly ministry, John looked up from the river Jordan and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And as soon as he was identified as the Lamb of God, that pointed him out as the paschal sacrifice that God was going to make for the sin redemption of his people. All I'm getting at is these things had to happen. And you would think that Jesus going around doing good, doing well, doing miracles, healing people, raising the dead, you would think that people would see that and just say, well, that's good. That's good stuff he's doing. And I've often read the story of the people who were overwhelmed with such hatred of him that they couldn't wait to be rid of him. And I wonder why. Why would they be like that? All he ever did was good stuff, and yet people hate him. Why? Because it was predetermined before the foundation of the world that there were going to be people who would reject him, who would hate him, who would ultimately put him on a cross. That had to happen. So what we're about to read is not only Jesus making sure that that happens, but then revving up the hatred of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, so that they would reach the point where they wanted to be done with him and so that he would hang on the cross on Passover of that year 
so that he could spend three days, three nights in the grave and would rise again on the Feast of First Fruits. That just all has to happen. And so Jesus, in everything that we're going to read him doing here, is just laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for what is ultimately going to happen. These things were predetermined since before the foundation of the world, and there was absolutely no chance that these people were not going to end up very angry at him. Not only because it was prophesied of them, but because Jesus walks around tweaking them. Jesus walks around making sure they are angry at him. That's what you're going to see today. Not only is he going to say that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, because they're angry enough that he's making himself out to be the son of God. But then rather than rubber stamping Moses, rather than saying, I've come as the Messiah, now you all need to keep the law, he walks around talking again with that sort of authority where he's able to say, I have such authority that I'm even the authority over the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is the sign of the Old Covenant. Keeping Sabbath is the rule that was imposed on Israel that separated them from all the rest of the human beings on the planet. These are the people of Yahweh. These are the people of God. And one thing we know they do is they keep Sabbath. It was the lack of keeping the Sabbaths that drove the Israelites out of their land so that the land could keep the Sabbath. All I'm trying to do is get you to see how vitally important Sabbath keeping is to the Jewish leaders and to the Jewish religion. And then Jesus shows up, not only makes himself son of God, not only shows himself to be the authority who has new teaching and who has healing ability and is doing things like nobody's ever seen before. But then he goes so far as to say, oh, you know that whole Sabbath thing? I'm in charge of that. I'm even Lord over that. I get to call the rules where even the most important sign and insignia of your covenant is concerned. That's how much authority I have. So what we're going to see again is Jesus taking authority and Jesus really, I, I, don't, I can't think of a better word. Someone think of a better word. Really tweaking the Jewish leaders. He's really upsetting the Jewish leaders. There, is that better? He's really just making sure that the Jewish leaders see him as a threat to their religion. Now remember that it's hard for us 2,000 years after the fact it's hard for us to enter into the mindset that the Jewish leaders had. But the Jewish leaders not only ruled politically and ruled in the temple and had a great deal of authority over people's lives, they also lived by the temple, they lived by the sacrifices, and they were making themselves rich as a result. And so if somebody comes along and says, your system is ending I'm now the way that people get to God. The worship at Jerusalem that God himself laid out, God himself inspired, God himself ruled over. That's ending and now all the authority is going to be to me and the worship's going to be to me and people are going to look to me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You can see why the Jewish leaders are really worried about him. Because if he's correct... If he's telling the truth, they're out of a job. 
The gig is up. We're, we're, we're not going to be able to do this anymore. We're not going to hold sway over people's conscience anymore. You can see why they wanted to get rid of him, because all they got to do is get rid of that one person, and they get to all continue in their religion, in their job, and in their authority in Israel. So don't miss that when you're thinking about motivations for why these people would so dislike Jesus. Because Jesus is walking around saying things like, it's me. It's all me. It's all about me. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's about us. It's about the temple. It's about sacrifices. It's about tithing. We definitely need you to keep tithing because that's how we live. And we definitely need you to keep bringing sacrifices because that's how we eat. And we definitely need you to bring your treasures into the temple because that's how we get rich. And then Jesus comes along and says, new covenant, new deal. And he's going to this morning distinguish everything about himself as completely qualitatively new and different than the old covenant. And as soon as he does that, he has separated himself from the Jewish religious system. You get that? Yes. So you can see why they're upset. You can see why they're like, uh, this, this guy could upset everything we're about. All right, we're going to start at verse 14 of chapter 2. Thus endeth the second introduction of the morning. Tom had the first one. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. Okay, let's talk about who tax collectors are for a moment. You know that Jerusalem is under Roman dominion at the time, and the Romans managed to get some Jews who would collect taxes that they would then pay to Rome. The Romans made those tax collectors pretty well to do. These were kind of rich people, but they were also highly hated people. Because the other Jews and Israelites understood that they were giving money to tax collectors who were then giving that money to Rome, who were their persecutors, who were the people who were lording it over them. So not only do I have soldiers over me, I'm paying them to do it. And I'm paying them through tax collectors. Some of your translations will talk about publicans. It's the same thing. A publican was a tax collector who took money from Israel to give to Rome. Highly hated people. So who does Jesus go to? First, the first four people, fishermen. Not the high and mighty, not the kings, not the princes of the world. The first four apostles he chooses, fishermen. After that, tax collector. Okay, well, if he's going to go to a tax collector, that would be like, I don't know, think of some uh, lowly, unliked profession here in America these days. Somebody that you could look at and think, well, that, that person, if they're willing to do that, if they're willing to do that job, they just can't be a very good person. I don't know what that job would be. I'm going to go with drugs are you went with drugs are the octogenarian went with drugs are actually not a bad comparison. And so 
Yeah, you would look at them and you would think, horrible person. Jesus goes, yeah, you, you're, you're mine. Yes, Steve. When Jonathan Goforth went to China, he wanted to reach every home in a given area. And that included something like 14 brothels, where he went into the brothels to preach the gospel. Yeah. To people who need it. They absolutely needed it. Right. And that's what Jesus is going to get at. He's going to end up telling the Pharisees, look, I didn't come to call the righteous. Because they considered themselves righteous. They considered themselves holy. They considered themselves doing fine. He says, I didn't come for you. You think you're fine. I came for sinners. I came to call sinners to repentance. And these people that I'm calling, they know they're sinners. That's who I've come for. And so, where does Jesus go? Right to Levi. We know him as Matthew. He went to Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax office, and he said to him, if you will make me your Lord and Savior, I promise that I can do something about your unpopularity culturally. I know you've already got a big house, but don't you want a new car? I promise you perfect health. None of that. What did Jesus say? Follow me. Same thing he said to Peter, John, James, Andrew. He just said to them, follow me. And they followed. And Mark takes the time to say, and immediately they put down their nets. They left their father's business and they followed Jesus. I keep saying that's an effectual call. I can say it all day long. I can say to people, hey, come on, follow me. And they're, they're not likely to. But Jesus is able to say, follow me, and that call has such authority behind it that people get up and follow him. Now, it's one thing to say that fishermen maybe don't have anything better to do. Maybe in leaving dad's business, they weren't getting along with dad. Maybe, maybe they've just decided this is a better offer. Okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. This is a tax collector. This is a guy who's doing well. He's got the big house. He's got the income. And when Jesus says, follow me, he follows. Because Jesus has authority over people no matter what station of life they're in. And he rose and followed him. And it came about that he was reclining at the table in his house. Okay, this is even worse now. Jesus goes to the house that Levi owns. And what does he find there at Levi's house? Other tax collectors and other sinners. Now, this word sinner means, according to what the Jewish leaders believed, this meant ill-taught people, people who are not educated in the law, people who don't know how to live a righteous life. People who don't know how to live a good life because they haven't been educated in the way of Moses and therefore they are sinners. Very earthly. Very earthly. And therefore any Jewish leader would just assume these are people that are on their way to hell. These are people who are going to be under the condemnation of God. These are sinners. Jesus is reclining at a table 
with many tax gatherers and sinners. Do you think he knew who was at the table with him? Yes. And yet that's who he's willing to hang out with. It came about that as he was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Notice again that Mark takes the time to point out there's a whole lot of people following Jesus. There's a whole lot of disciples, learners, people under the discipline, people who want to hear what Jesus has to say and what Jesus is doing naturally. If you knew that there was someone in Smyrna, forget Smyrna. If you knew there was somebody in Antioch, forget Antioch. If you knew there was somebody in Kentucky that was healing people, you'd go. I mean, really healing people, raising the dead, making blind people see. You'd be like, I got to go to Kentucky. Well, that's what's happening. Wherever he goes, he's in Capernaum now. Wherever he travels, people gather to him because this is something unique, something different. Something that verse 12 says, they started glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so because they've never seen anything like this, they want more of it. Let's go see what else he's going to do. So there are many of them following him, and when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax gatherers, hold on, do you think Jesus knew that there just happened to be scribes of the Pharisees hanging around? Do you think he knew they were there? Yes. Yeah, of course he knew they were there. So what does he do? Eat with tax gatherers and sinners. Because that's really going to upset them. Those people over there, they're not going to be happy about this. But I'm going to do it. Notice that he is not afraid at all to offend the religious people in order to get to the salvation of the people he was sent to. He was not afraid at all of any human opinion. He was not afraid at all that somebody might be offended. Someone might be a little taken aback by his actions. No, he came to do his father's will, and he was going to do his father's will no matter what, and he didn't care what anybody thought about it, which, by the way, ought to be our attitude, that we're going to do our father's will and read our father's word, and we're going to come and worship our father regardless of what anybody thinks of it. That's just following our leader. So when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now that's a fundamental to everything we know about Christianity. There is a version, I suppose we could say, there's a version of religion on the planet, there's a version of Christianity on the planet, there are denominations on the planet that say the way you get to God is you work real hard to clean yourself up. In other words, get yourself well. Make yourself whole and healthy And then God will accept you. 
Except that's not what Jesus ever said. He came to tax gatherers. He came to sinners. He came to prostitutes. He came to the lowest dregs of the earth. And his thinking was, I didn't come to save high and holy people because they think they're fine. The same way that you don't go to the doctor just so you can walk in and say, hi, doc, I'm fine. Everything's good. I just wanted you to know. I'm doing great. I've been fine lately. Checked myself when I got up this morning. It's all good. Here's your $125. I just wanted to tell you I'm fine. You don't do that. You wait and you wait to go to the doctor until you're just so sick that you say, I got to have help. I got to get help. Get me to a doctor. Well, that's exactly what sinful people do. When sinful people come to the end of themselves, when they recognize their own wretchedness and unrighteousness before God, that's when they're going to look for a help. That's when they're going to look for a savior. I have dealt through the years with so many. I met a man once. This is true. I met a man once whose title was the very right reverend. I mean, talk about the high and holy, very right reverend. You think that guy had any sense of his own inadequacy? No, he felt good about himself. Very religious guy. Oh, and dressed to the teeth and the collar and the whole thing. And oh, just the, the very right reverend. And Jesus didn't come, he says, to call people like that because they are already confident that they're good enough. Those are the kind of people who don't look for help. Those are the kind of people who don't feel the necessity of a savior. What they feel is that they're sufficient. They're adequate. They can do it. Jesus says, I didn't come to call them. I came to call sinners to repentance because sinners know they need help. And if God is good to you, I'll get right to you, Joni. And if God is good to you, he will drive you to the point where you feel your own sinfulness and where you know how badly you need a savior. The spirit of God within you will drive you to know that you can't do it. You can't get to him. And believe me, in that wretched state, in that forlorn state, in that end of yourself state, that is the very grace of God. Amen. Because left to yourself, you will think in your ego, in your pride, in your arrogance, you will think, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm dandy. I'm doing great. Run faster, jump higher. I got this thing down. That's what you'll think because we all just intrinsically believe that we're sufficient. We're adequate. We can do this. It takes the grace of God to teach you that you can't do it. And to make you really feel the pain of the wretchedness of who you are before a righteous, holy God. Like Isaiah saying... I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And worse, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I'm wretched. And worse, I can't get any help from any of these other people because they are also wretched sinners. How desperate am I? Well, that's somebody who knows they need a savior. You were going to say, Joni. You were going to say exactly that. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's why I deeply question religion that props you up and says you're good, you're right, you're adequate, you can do it. Just give it that old college try. Come on, you can be good enough for God to accept you. I think that is just feeding the egocentric beast. That's not bringing people to their knees. That's not bringing them to a real need of a savior. That's telling people, that's lying to people and telling people, you're good enough. You're capable enough. Bible says, you're not. You're nowhere near. So what good are you doing, anybody, if you prop up their ego and tell them they're good, they're fine? You're not doing them any good. You're condemning them in the process. But the spirit of God, the humility of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God will drive you to the recognition of your own desperate need for a savior. Not a kind of need, not like putting Jesus on like a groovy T-shirt, not like, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm really groovy and I chose Jesus and it's me, me, me. None of that driving you to the realization of your desperate need. You need Jesus or you are utterly, eternally undone. So Jesus says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Notice that he just equated sin with sickness. Sin is a sickness. Get that right. Sin is a cancer that is running through your body. Sin is a sickness that is killing you. That is why you're dying. That is why every day we hear about somebody dying. Because of sin. Every day we hear about another sickness. Because of sin. Every day another lie. Lying has become the national pastime. Because of sin. If you know... That you are truly, genuinely sick with sin. Then you're going to seek a physician. I did not come to call the righteous. But sinners, that's who I came to call. And John's disciples, this is John the Baptist. Don't forget that John the Baptist also had disciples. He had followers. So John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Typical Jewish first century custom. Usually the Pharisaic custom was Mondays and Thursdays were fast days. Those were days when you didn't eat while the sun was up. And then when the sun went down, you could eat again. And that was just a very common custom So John's disciples did it, and the Pharisees were fasting. So they came to him and they said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why is that? Well, what you need to know culturally again, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, fasting was also a sign of repentance, or it could be a sign of remorse, It could be a sign of sadness. That's why Jesus took the time to say, when you fast, wash your face, look good, and go out and don't make it obvious that you're fasting because it was a sign of sadness. Well, Jesus' example is going to be, 
if somebody's getting married and the bridegroom has some men waiting on him, are they unhappy about that? Or are they happy to be part of his wedding? He says, well, same deal. My disciples are with me and I'm the bridegroom. And so they can't be unhappy, so they don't fast. Now the day is coming when I'm going to be taken from them. When that happens, they'll fast again. But they can't be fasting while I'm here. I'm here. Now you're going to notice in the next couple of examples that Jesus gives, there is this very positivity to Jesus, this very happiness to Jesus, this very deliverance that is in Jesus, this reason, this cause to celebrate in Jesus. So hearing this, Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. That's Mark's first reference to the cross that's coming. That's the first place where Mark records Jesus saying, I'm going to be taken from them. I'm among them. I'm choosing them. They're following me. I'm effectively calling them, but I'm going to be taken from them. And when I am taken from them, then they are going to return to the fasting. And then he's going to give a couple of examples that, let me see if I can prepare us to understand these, because he's going to talk about a patch of cloth, and he's going to talk about wineskins. And the thing that they both have in common is that if you take a brand new patch of material and then you wash it for the first time, it's going to shrink. Or if you take a wine skin and you put wine in it and let it ferment, it stretches the wine skin. If you stretch that wine skin again, the wine skin will burst. So if you're putting new wine skin into a pouch to ferment, you have to make sure it's a new pouch so it has room to expand. And if you're going to take an old piece of cloth and put a new patch on it, you got to make sure that the new patch has been appropriately shrunk and washed and everything else or else it's going to pull away from the cloth because it's new. It's new by nature. The wineskin is going to burst because it's new. It's, it's new by nature. New wine in an old wineskin, it's going to burst the old wineskin because the wine is new. It's new by nature. Okay, Jesus is here talking about the fact that they are old. They are the old covenant. They are the covenant of Moses. They are supporting the thing that is passing. And he's making the point, I am new. Now, notice what he's not doing. He's not rubber stamping Moses, and I know I keep saying this, but it's important to recognize that he is not saying, I am just a continuation of the Mosaic covenant. Those 613 rules and those laws and the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system and all that, I'm just a continuation of that. He doesn't say that. He says that stuff that's old. I knew. I knew covenant. When he dies, according to Paul, 
according to Paul, if he wrote the book of Hebrews, according to Paul, when Jesus died, when he was on the cross, that's when the new covenant went into effect. And the old covenant is done away with, nailed to his cross, taken out of the way. You cannot mix the old covenant and the new covenant. You cannot mix Moses and Jesus. You cannot mix Sinai and the newness that is Jesus. And Jesus is going to make that point by way of example and say, I'm so new that I can't be patched in with the old. I'm so new that if you poured me into the old wineskin, I'd burst the wineskin. So he's going to use examples that they're going to commonly understand, but he is exemplifying, he is demonstrating the newness of the new covenant. He is not, I'm going to keep stressing this, I'm just going to keep saying this over and over again, because so many people seem to get this wrong in their theological dissertations on Facebook, that (laughs) qualitatively new, the new covenant is qualitatively new, the quality of the new covenant, what it does, how it does it, is new. The old covenant was all about do stuff, do stuff, constantly doing stuff, do the stuff. The writer of Hebrews tells us, It never made anybody perfect. It never saved anybody. The blood of goats and bulls is not sufficient for the sin debt of anybody. But Jesus, by his one sacrifice, perfected forever those that he sanctified. Okay, that's different. Old, can't do it. New, done completely. The difference that I keep trying to stress is the old covenant says, do it, do it, do it. The new covenant says, it's done. That's a big difference. The old covenant said, if you do it, do it, do it, and do it properly, and do it perfectly, and do it perpetually, and do it all the time, from the time you're young to the time you're old, if you do it your whole life, then you'll live. The new covenant says, it's done, live. That's a big difference. So Jesus is starting to draw that distinction between the covenant that is in him, in his blood, in his sacrifice, and he's contrasting it with the Pharisees because that's who he's talking to. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who are defending the law of Moses, who are saying, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees would absolutely say that because Moses wouldn't allow for that. And Jesus is just going to keep saying, me, I'm different, I'm nude. Look at verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth into an old garment. Unshrunk cloth is brand new cloth. And because it's brand new, it hasn't been shrunk yet. But if you sew that new material into old cloth, when it shrinks, it's going to pull away from the old cloth. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new pulls away from the old. And a worse tear results. That's the bad news. A worse tear results. When he talks about the old wineskin in a second, 
he's going to say, and it bursts the wineskin. So notice that it's not just there's an incongruity between the old and the new. It's if you try to mix them, it gets worse. In both examples, it gets worse if you mix the old and the new. That's why I keep stomping on the new covenant, the new covenant of grace and faith and salvation in Christ Jesus. That is distinctly different than the old covenant. And you can't mix some new and some old because the end result ends up bad. You get it? Yes. Have I said anything Jesus didn't say? No. Well, yes. Okay. I used a whole lot more words than he did. But I'm just trying to clarify what he's getting at because look at verse 22. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. And the skins are also lost as well. But someone puts new wine into fresh wineskins. What is he saying? Saying, I'm the new wine. I'm the fresh wine. If you try to put me in your old wineskins, if you try to put me in the old covenant of Moses, I, I burst that, and then the wineskins bursted, and then the wine's wasted, and then it, it's just a, it's a bad result. I'm the new wine. I'm put into a new wineskin. Who's the new wineskin? The tax collectors, the sinners, the ones that I've come to save. They're the new wineskin. You would have rejected them. You are rejecting them. You're putting them out. You don't want them to be any part of your religion. Okay, then they're not part of your religion. They are new wineskins. I've come to save them. I put myself in them. They are new wineskins. They are new people that I am drawing to myself because you don't want them. The old covenant doesn't want them. Moses doesn't want them. Jesus wants them. May I make a quick application? Please. Who wants Devante? <laughs> Devante can go through his whole life trying to find his place and saying, who am I here on planet Earth? Have you ever had that sense of loneliness? Because if you haven't, you're not human. Jesus wants him. That's the point. Have you ever felt so destitute in your own sinfulness, in your own depravity, that you've asked, how could God want me? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Jesus wants you. Because you qualify for the saved group. How'd you qualify? Sinner. Jesus came to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I'm chief. Paul makes sure to say, I know how sinful I am. That's what qualifies me to be saved by Jesus. Nothing I've done, none of my righteousness, none of my goodness, none of that Pharisee of the Pharisees before the law blameless, none of that qualified me. In fact, I consider all that dung, he says, so that instead I can have Christ. So are you getting the distinction? No one puts new wine into an old wineskin, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins like Devante. And it came about, notice he's just going to keep doing this, and it came about 
that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Do you think he knew it was the Sabbath when he was passing through the grain field? Yes. Okay, now his apostles are with him. Notice that just previously, Mark says, he was eating and drinking at a tax collector's house. There's plenty of food there. Stay there on the Sabbath. Just stay there and you'll have food and you'll have stuff to drink and you won't have to do anything to upset the Pharisees. Just stay there at Matthew's house. No, he goes to a grain field so that his followers have to follow him through a grain field. He's doing all of this on purpose and he's doing it on the Sabbath. He knows it's the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. What are they doing? They're eating. That's all they're doing. They're just having something to eat as they're walking through the grain field. But that breaks the Sabbath rule. That's work. And you're not allowed to work. In the Old Testament, there was a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Stone him. Okay, so now the Pharisees think they finally got Jesus dead to rights. He's walking through a grain field, and the people that are with him are breaking the Sabbath. So they've got him. And the Pharisees were saying to him, now just, just if the Pharisees are saying that to him, they had to be close enough to him to say this to him, which means they were close enough to him for him to know they're there. So not only is he walking through a grain field on the Sabbath so that they would be hungry, so that they would pick grain, but he did it right in front of the Pharisees. He's doing this on purpose. And the Pharisees were saying to him, see here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he gave it also to those that were with him. So Jesus' first question was, have you never read? Has everybody here read that? Do you know that? You know that story? Have you ever read it? Well, we're going to. Turn to 1 Samuel. Turn back to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there in Mark. Turn to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. The first six verses will be sufficient to tell this story. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? Now we need to back up just a little bit. If you were to read the end of chapter 20, you would find out that Jonathan has just helped David escape the wrath of Saul. And now Saul is very angry at Jonathan for helping David escape. So David is basically on the run here. But when Ahimelech sees him, he thinks perhaps uh, this could be trouble. Why would he be here? And then he says, but why are you alone? You ought to have some men with you protecting you. Why are you alone? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, 
this is not true. What he's about to say is not true. He's actually running from Saul. But he says to Ahimelech the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. So he said, I'm actually here doing the king's business. By golly, that's what I'm up to. I'm doing the king's business. I'm not running away from the king trying to save my own life. No, no, no. I'm doing the king's business. Now, therefore, since I have the authority of the king behind me, now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever else can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread. There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. In other words, he's saying before we even took this trip. The men were already consecrated before we took the trip. And now that we're on the trip, there's not any women with us. So, yes, the men have been kept from women. Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out. And the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no other bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it is taken away. Every week on the Sabbath, on the table of showbread, new bread was put in place. The old bread could then be eaten, but only by the priests because the priests had been consecrated. David was hungry. His men were starving. He comes to the priest. He says, we've got to have something to eat. He says, we only have common bread. He says, give me that. He ends up saying, and we don't know really how true it is, that the men are all consecrated. No, it's all good. Just give me the bread. We're starving. We need something to eat. Okay, Jesus says, remember that? That's in your own scripture. That's part of David, your great king. You will also notice in 1 Samuel and through the whole rest of the Bible that David is never condemned for having done that. Never does God hold him guilty for having eaten the consecrated bread. So Jesus brings it up to them and says... Remember how David and his men were starving and they ate the consecrated bread and that's not lawful? But remember how God didn't condemn them for doing it? Okay, my disciples are with me. They're hungry. We're walking through a field and there's food. And they're eating the food. All they're doing is the same thing that David did. Yes, it breaks your law, but... God is more interested in providing for his people than just keeping the Sabbath intact. Because look at what Jesus says next. And he was saying to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, yeah, there's a Sabbath rule, but you've misunderstood the Sabbath rule. The Sabbath is a good thing. 
God gave the Sabbath to Israel so that they would take one day of rest and worship God. Because resting and worshiping God is good for you. And if I leave you to your own devices, I know what human beings are like. You're just going to go out and be so busy that you're going to forget to worship God. You're going to forget to come and sacrifice before God. You're going to forget to bring yourself before God in humility because you're busy. You're going to get too busy. Should we apply this? Should we apply it to Sunday morning church? Yes, I know. We're all busy. I know. But I'm too busy to get to church. I got things to do. I don't have time to worship God this week. Well, the reason that God first implemented the Sabbath was for the good of men. So that men would stop their duties, stop their work, stop their labors, and come worship God because that's good for them. So Jesus said, man wasn't made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man because it's good for men. And then look at verse 28. Consequently, the Son of Man... That's a reference to himself. Once again, he's using that messianic terminology. I am the son of man. Consequently, the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Okay, well, if he's Lord over the Sabbath and he is the new covenant and we are with him in him, he's in us then is that Sabbath still a rule that is incumbent on our conscience as part of our requirement in order to worship God? No. No. No, because that is the sign of the old covenant. He's the new covenant. And there is no similar rule in the new covenant that says to keep the Sabbath. Theologians point out, and it's true, that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated. In other words, just because we're in the New Covenant, killing's not a good idea suddenly. No adultery, that rule still stands. Have no other gods before me, still a, a good idea, good rule, good... Which of the Ten Commandments is not repeated in the New Testament? Keep the, Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. It's not in there anywhere. Now, some folks point out that Jesus kept the Sabbath occasionally. <laughs> and some people point out that the early apostles kept the Sabbath. Yeah, they were all Jewish. And yes, that was their custom. But when Paul is writing to the New Covenant Gentile church, He never once says, keep the Sabbath. It's important. It's incumbent. It's an absolute requirement. Keep the Sabbath. Doesn't say it. In fact, the early church, you read in the book of Acts, started gathering on the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so for as long as there's been a church, we have been gathering on the first day of the week because of the significance of that day to our entire theology. But we don't keep Sabbath. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You know that had to make them really, really angry. Because the very next thing you read 
and I am going to let you go because we've got one more thing to do this morning. But the very next thing he's going to do, and we'll start reading it next week, the very next thing he's going to do is heal a man on the Sabbath. It's almost like Mark, after writing, oh yeah, Jesus said I'm Lord over the Sabbath, he went, oh yeah, and there's that time that he healed a man on the Sabbath. Proof, evidence yet again. And he heals the man right in front of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are going to call him on it. And he's going to twist it around on them and say, is it good to do good on the Sabbath? Is that okay? Is God happy when you do good on the Sabbath? They're stuck. They don't know what to say. He's going to heal on the Sabbath, and right behind that, they're going to start trying to find a way to be rid of him. He's doing it on purpose. He's making himself distinctly, separately new and unique and not any part of their religion. And he is making sure that they are angry enough that his date with the cross is going to be kept exactly on the day it's supposed to be kept so that he is the sacrifice, he is the Passover. All of that is the foreknowledge and counsel and determinant plan of God. And it absolutely has to happen. And Jesus is here making sure it does. Got it? it. By the way, let me add now one more wrinkle. Because for the last three weeks, as we've been reading through the book of Matthew, I keep using this word authority. I keep saying he's authority. He's in charge. He's the authority. He has authority over devils. He has authority over religion. He has authority over the teaching. He has all this authority. Notice he has authority over his own death. That's why he would say... I have this command from my father. No one takes my life from me. I lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. And I have this command from my father. He has authority over his own life and death. And that's authority that we don't have. I didn't ask to be born and I don't know how I'm going to leave this planet. Jesus did. From start to finish, he was completely and utterly in control. If he's in that kind of control of his own life, I would venture to say he has that kind of control over your life as well. And you can trust him because he knows what he's doing. And he demonstrates it, and he demonstrates that authority again and again and again. So trust him. Make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, now am I alone up here? No. <laughs> okay. Now, don't jump and run. We're going to say goodbye to the internet, folks, but we have one more thing to do this morning. Okay, so say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.